Father, what a privilege to be able to worship you in singing. What a privilege to be able to worship you in giving as we laid our tithes and offerings before you. What a privilege to be able to worship you as we explore your word, as we listen to your voice. Incredibly humbled, Father, that you would choose to use me to be your spokesperson. So as we worship you by listening to your word, I pray, God, that you will continue to speak. We love you. We thank you for loving us and giving us this opportunity every Sunday to gather as a family of God and join with millions around the globe to give you praise. In your name we pray. As you listen to the sermon this morning and as you process everything I'm saying, think again of some of the songs that you just sang and you'll see how they incredibly tie in together. We're continuing our series in the Fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Fruit Stand is all about. We've been over there for the last few weeks. We're going to wrap it up in a couple of weeks as we begin to unpack and have been looking at what are some of the characteristics of a Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving follower of God. Now, they're all over the New Testament. I believe a lot of them come out of what we're seeing and examining over these weeks together as we begin to explore some of those character traits out of Galatians chapter 5. Jesus laid the groundwork for what it was like to be a follower of his in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different renditions of the Jesus story. Each of them look at it from a different vantage point. Each of them writes to a different audience. As you begin to see that, you begin to realize and recognize that Jesus is calling them and us to a pretty high level of obedience as well as lifestyle. The epistles then begin to flesh it out. The book of Acts talks about what those group of people did and how not only did Jesus capture their life and capture their imagination, but literally captured their soul. And they began to take the gospel to do exactly what he said to the ends of the earth. Paul then, one of the recipients of the gospel of God's amazing grace, begins to write. And he writes Romans and so many other books. And the other disciples and apostles begin to flesh out what it means to be a follower of God in the epistles. One of the hundred things I love about God, the thousand things I love about God, is that he doesn't let us try to figure out what this Christianity is all about on our own. He doesn't call us to a high level and say, figure it out. Hope you do well. He says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. And if you're lacking anything, it is not God's fault. Because he's given us everything we need to live the life he's calling us to. And I love that about God, that I don't have to try to figure this all out. He offers us everything we need. Over the last number of weeks, we've been examining some of those qualities of being a Jesus-loving follower of God out of Galatians chapter 5. And even though we said it's fruit not fruits. We've been pulling them apart one at a time. Remember Christianity in your summer notes, if you haven't taken them out, do that, is not a term or a label. Or even what I say I am, but how I live my life. It's not what I say I am. It's not what I call myself. It's how I live out the life that God has called me to, how I respond to life, how I respond to circumstances and to people. The ultimate goal of life for God, for you and I, is not what I do, it's what I become. Jesus began his ministry with the Beatitudes because it was all about who I am. Not what I do, not what I do with my life or how I live it out. Specifically in my career choice, but what God does in me, what I become as a result of that relationship with God. And probably one of the best ways in your notes 
to kind of look or examine our process and how well we're doing in that is how we live out these qualities. Now, some of them tie in together. So I'm going to put three together this morning and three together next Sunday morning as we finish this series out. I want you to look at the context again in Galatians 5. Now, I'm going to begin at verse 22. It begins all the way through that and starts again in verse 1 of chapter 5, but I'm going to begin at 22. I, I know we say to you every week, open your Bibles too, and I'm not sure if all of you bring them because we have the words on the screen. Most of us use our iPads or phones or whatever that may be, and that's fine. That's wonderful. One of the things I love about the Bible when I actually have it in my hands is I underline certain words so that when I go back, I can kind of look at the context, look at what's around it, but I can see some of the highlights to remind me of why that piece was so incredibly important for me to not only know, but hopefully to memorize. There are a couple of words I'd love for you to underline in this particular section if you do have your Bibles. But when the Holy Spirit controls our life, what do you think the key word there is? Control. When the Holy Spirit controls my life, not when I do, but when the Holy Spirit controls my life, things are different. When He controls my life, and I've given the control over to Him, then He is able to produce this kind of fruit in my life. So if I'm not loving, if I'm not joyful, if I'm not patient, if I'm not kind, it's probably because I haven't yielded the control of my life over to Him. You see how they tie together? When I allow that to happen, then he is able to produce this kind of fruit in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And there's no conflict with the Jewish laws then. Those who belong to Christ have nailed to the cross those evil desires, and they left them there. He defines those evil desires in the verses before that. Those of us who claim to know Jesus Christ, who have committed our lives to him, are not what we used to be. We celebrate that every baptism. We talk about what we used to do and how the things that we used to follow and how we did our own deal and got involved in so many different things. <coughs> now that I've embraced Christ as my Savior, I don't do that anymore. I literally nailed that to the cross in a visible sense. And then when I come to faith in Christ, I give my life over to Him. I give Him the control of my life. I give my control of my life over to the Spirit of God. And I am a new creature in Christ. I raise up out of the water to celebrate what I've really done in that verse particularly there. Now, verse 25, what do you think the key word there is? If. If we're living by the Spirit's power, then we ought to follow that. If we are living now by the Holy Spirit's power, then we need to follow His leading in every part of our lives, not just our Sunday life, but every part of our life, not just in most of my life, but every part of my life. I love His outcome of that. Then we really don't need to look for honors and popularity, which bottom line rejoice, leads itself to jealousy and hard feelings. I love the follow-up of that. Now, this morning we're going to look at joy. Scripture said, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Is that not the hardest part of that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Now I get it. It said rejoice in the Lord. So I get that within the context of that. But that always sometimes is the most difficult part of that. No matter how many times we sing the song, Old Church Choir, there ain't nothing going to steal my joy, doesn't it seem like there's a lot of things that sure try? I mean, we can sing the song, and I can hear it on the radio all the time, and I love the song. We did it here a few months ago, and, and I love that song. There ain't nothing going to steal my joy. And every single time I listen to that song, I find myself saying, it seems like he sure tries. Not he is in God, but he is in the enemy. Life, sickness, situations, circumstances, peace, people, 
all kinds of things that seem to try to steal my joy. I read these. You know it's going to be a bad day when you call your answering service and they tell you it's none of your business. You know it's going to be a bad day when you sink your teeth into a juicy red apple and they stay there. I found this one in a minister's magazine. You know it's going to be a bad day while reading the obituaries in the paper. You remember the name of the person you were supposed to visit in the hospital. Yeah, that is a bad day. What? You're all here, so we're okay. In your sermon notes, you'll notice there's a difference between happiness and joy. There really is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is external. Joy is internal. Happiness many times is based on chance or circumstances. Joy is based on a choice. I choose in the middle of all of that to exude joy. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy based on my relationship with Jesus. When you examine God's words, you have to notice that he wants his people to be joyful. I think one of the saddest commentaries sometimes of somebody that you know know Jesus is that they just don't seem to show any joy. I think one of the saddest definitions of a Christian is one who doesn't seem to know or understand or exude joy. What I love on a Sunday morning is every once in a while I'll just look at the faces of the people up here. And I mean, you can't help but notice that most of them, if not all of them, just exude joy. Not because they're singing a song they know or I finally know the right notes or I had the opportunity to sing, but I really do feel joyful. And I want to share that. I want to show that. It's really sad when people who, know no, who you know know Christ don't seem to look joyful. Now, I'm not saying when I look around here this morning, I'm going to be really, really careful not to look at you in the face, but not all of you are just excited or showing or demonstrating joy. Every time I look at Sue, it's just always there. But God basically says, if you really are joyful, and we sing it every once in a while, every once in a while you ought to tell your face you are. And just let people recognize there's just something different about how I feel. We ought to be the most joyful people around. We've got Jesus. We've got hope. You may be in a tough marriage, have difficult kids, a rough job, and you won't always be happy. But joy comes from knowing that I've got a God who loves me, one who died for me, who offers me life, forgiveness, and heaven. And heaven, to be honest with you, is the icing on the cake. There's a lot of biblical expressions of joy. I'm going to give you just a couple. One means bright and shining. It is obvious. It is evident. I see it on your face. Hopefully you see it on mine. It's a Hebrew word that comes from the context when David came back from slaying Goliath into the city of Jerusalem and everybody was excited. I mean, there was just some dancing. There was celebration that goes with that. If you know anything about the Old Testament, it's one of those incredible stories where this young 15, 14, 16-year-old shepherd boy comes in after nobody's willing to take on this giant Goliath who constantly is berating the people of Israel and putting them down and talking about their God. And finally David said, okay, enough is enough. He takes the guy on, slays him, and walks into Jerusalem. And I mean, everybody's excited. They can't wait to be able to celebrate the victory that God has done. And you see it over and over again. When David brings back the Ark of the Covenant, people dance and celebrate. His wife, who was seeing that from the outside, saw that and said, David, you need to settle down. You just need to put that down. Put it away and... There's a fascinating piece that comes out of that that for whatever reason says she was barren the rest of her life. Obviously, I think it had to do with childbearing, but I think it was much, much deeper than that. When you know it's there and you have every reason to celebrate joy, it ought to be evident. 
Like that five-year-old, six-year-old, four-year-old at Christmas time, man. I mean, you see those kids, they cannot wait. No matter what you've told them, no matter how many times they have to wait, they're there at that moment just waiting to open them presents. And it just exudes out of them. They are just so excited. And then every once in a while, they look at your present and find, present and find out you've got socks and a T-shirt saying, Lord, don't ever let me grow up. <gasps> I don't want to be an old person to get socks and T-shirts for Christmas. Context is sometimes the joy of a bridegroom and a groom at their wedding. Not happy because the day's finally here. Not happy because what God's going to do in their life. Not happy because they get to celebrate their life together. Just absolutely joy. A couple of weeks ago, I did a wedding, and I watched them, and I saw them, and I saw them coming up after pronouncing them husband and wife and walking down, and my wife captured the absolute perfect picture of Evan and Kylie just so excited and so much joy that was flowing. One of the most enjoyable moments in a wedding is when I get to not only pronounce the man and wife, but watch them walk away and see the joy that is just flowing out of them. A couple of years ago, or maybe not even a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to do baptisms all the time. But there was a picture that someone took of Emily coming up out of the tank. And it was, to me, one of the most visual descriptions of deep down inside my soul joy. Last Sunday morning, I had a couple come up to me. And the girl was obviously pregnant. She said, will you pray for me? And I said, sure, honey. I'd be happy to do that. When do you do? She said, today. I said, let's pray really, really quick. <laughs> God held it till Friday morning, and at 5 o'clock in the morning, she had that baby. And I walked into their room just a few hours after that, and I mean to tell you, that's joy. Not because the baby had finally arrived. That is just absolute, flat out, I want to show it, joy. And obviously, I got their permission to be able to show that picture this morning. <laughs> Second expression is shouting, exuberance. That it just not only visually comes out, or visually is evident and seen, but it literally comes out. And I just can't help but keep it in. Connie had a lady in her last or in her first church when she was growing up as a little girl. Every once in a while, she said she would just get so excited that right in the middle of the message, she'd go, glory. <laughs> kind of like Judy does every once in a while, where you just can't help but expressing yourself. Now, you are not, to be honest with you, the most expressive verbal audience I've ever been around. Amen. You did. <laughs> Sometimes you got to, every once in a while, don't go there for a living or don't go there every Sunday. But you ought to go to some churches where people really are animated and they express it. Now, sometimes it gets out of control. Sometimes it's just for the moment. Sometimes it's just so that people around them think they're religious or think they're spiritual. And I get the balance of that. But every once in a while, it's just fun to be able to know that I've got people in the audience who really do understand. And they're not saying, get it done, Pastor, hurry up and get it over. Not those kind of responses. But they just want to say, amen. Even after the singing, if it's not about my preaching, man, you got to do it every once in a while about some of these songs. Because they are awesome. As I get the opportunity to just finally express what I can't put into words that someone else has written, and now on a Sunday morning, I get to shout out loud to the God of the universe. Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord your God is with you, mighty to save, takes great delight in you. This is my favorite part. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that incredible or what? You sang this morning to God, right? You wanted to give your expression to God. Is it not awesome that while you were giving your expression to God and singing to him, he's singing over you? I mean, it's almost like God's going in heaven somewhere. Hey, 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 CAC starting. Come here. You got to hear this. You got to listen to this. You're singing to God. 
right? He's up there listening to what you have to say, and then he joins you. He sings and rejoices over you. Now I know it's well beyond Sunday morning and all of that. But there's just something amazing about the fact that the God of the universe, I, I feel every once in a while, just stops heaven to listen to the praise of his people. And while he's doing that, he's rejoicing over the praises of his people. Got to make you want to really sing with all you've got. Whether you can sing or not, doesn't matter. Joy of the Lord is our strength. In the New Testament, there are a couple of words for grace and joy that are intertwined. Charis is one of them, where we get the word charismatic, the gifts of the Spirit. Come from the same root word, which obviously indicates there's a relationship between grace and joy. When we think of the grace of God, it ought to bring an incredible amount of joy into our life. The joy of knowing that we are God's children, that our sins have been forgiven. The joy of knowing that I am His and He is mine. That's why when the angels sang at the birth of Jesus, good tidings of what? Great joy. Why? Because they knew exactly what God was going to do. They knew exactly why Jesus came. They knew exactly why He was here. That God's coming through Jesus Christ was the ultimate outpouring of His grace to the world. And because of that, man, I've got to display joy based on now what I know about what Jesus does. Joy is a matter of perspective. Nothing to do with happiness. It is a matter of perspective. So let me give you three things to help you in that process. Number one, focus on giving rather than receiving. Focus on giving rather than receiving your sermon notes. Now, I know we all know it's blessed, more blessed to give than receive. But if you're like me on Christmas morning or on your birthday, you want to say what you get. But there is something fascinating when I, instead of concentrating on what I receive out of life or what I get out of life, what I can give and what I can pass along. Powerful verse in 2 Peter, and I'm going to repeat it again in a little bit. Learn to put aside your own desires so that you become patient and godly. This will make possible the next step, which is for you to enjoy other people and really like them. And finally, you get to the point where you love them deeply. Secondly, focus on healing rather than hurting. Be gentle and ready to forgive. Never hold grudges, Colossians says. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous that define love is patient, is kind, is tender. And then one of that famous, that one most famous piece where it says love doesn't keep score. One of the hardest for many people. It's hard for me to be honest with you if I were to be honest. Hard not to keep a record in your mind of all the things that have been said or the letters you've gotten or the emails or the, whatever that may be. And, and so I constantly go back when I remember the love that God has for me and what he's done for me. When it comes to understanding how to do that, we need to fully understand what it means to be forgiven. Because when we really embrace that, then it makes it so much easier to forgive. Joe did a phenomenal job a couple of weeks ago when he began to describe what it was like for that day. When that gal poured all of her soul, not just her vial, but every fiber of her being and her past at the feet of Jesus. When you really, maybe you've had a perfect life, you've been perfect all your life, you don't remember what it was like before you had Jesus. But I'm telling you, when you really fully recognize what you may have been before you had Jesus, and now what you are in Jesus, it ought to bring incredible joy. And it ought to make you one of the most forgiving, loving people on the planet. Focus on God's power, which is obvious. Focus on God's power rather than our problems. 
That's why a lot of people journal. Because we sometimes forget what God has done. Or we focus on the moment or the problems that we have. And we kind of forget that God has answered so many prayers and so many blessings that we've received that those who really do journal and journal well, every once in a while just begin, instead of focusing on the problems, focus on his power and what he's already done. And it helps them to concentrate more on this one. Trust in him at all times, Psalm 68, Psalm 62, I'm sorry. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. How can you have joy in spite of circumstances? Because God is with me, as I said a moment ago. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I'm there. Troubles will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, you won't be burned. Hard trials will come to you. They will not hurt you, for I am the Lord your God. We sang it this morning, who you say I am. And I fully understand who I am and who he says I am, not what other people say, not even what I think about me, but I understand fully what he says I am. Changes everything. Because God really has a plan for me. I'm here for a reason. I'm not an accident. I lo- There's verses all over Scripture. God has a plan for you. And, and we all use that verse at graduation time. One of my favorite is, obviously, the one we sang about this morning. It was on the screen. I am God's masterpiece. Created in Christ to do good works. You're a masterpiece. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You're not an oops. You and I are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, knit together in the womb in case you wondered where life begins. Knit together in the womb. He saw you. He formed you. He shaped you. He knows exactly what he wants you to be. And when I fully understand that, I'm overwhelmed that the God of the universe shaped me, formed me, and made me. And obviously, thirdly, because he can help me. Psalm 43, why are you so gloomy and discouraged? Trust in God, and then I will praise him for his wondrous help. I said to you last Sunday morning, when you really feel frustrated and angry about life, you ought to read the Psalms, because they give you a balanced perspective. If sometimes you don't even know what to say to God, read him the Psalms, as I said last Sunday. One of the things that I'm always fascinated about when I read the Psalms and watch David write is that how many times he'll start out here and then go down in that valley of his emotions, and then always, almost every occasion seems to come up on the other side, but I will trust you. Now, many times he'll start down here, but almost in every occasion he brings it up here, even in the middle of all of that, I know you're with me, I know you're there, I will trust you. So, got joy? Not because you had last weekend off. I mean genuine, deep down in your soul joy. So much so that it expresses itself in the way you treat other people. Hence, included in here is gentleness and kindness. Gentleness often corresponds with the word meekness in Scripture, where Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who rest weary, heavy laden, all of you who work so hard beneath your heavy yoke. Wear my yoke. It fits perfectly. I'll teach you where I am gentle and I'm humble, and you'll find rest for your soul. You remember the triumphal entry into Jerusalem? We called it triumphal entry. He didn't. He didn't say, hey, guys, go get me a donkey. I'm going on the triumphal entry. He just said, I'm going into Jerusalem. I, I, by the way, I need you to know what's going to happen when I do. So they obey him. They go out and get a donkey. No one would have ever expected the Messiah. I don't even think the disciples expected the Messiah of the universe because they finally had believed in him. 
to come into Jerusalem on a mule, on a donkey. I mean, no conquering king ever does that. No someone who calls himself king ever does that, let alone the Messiah. But he comes in riding on a donkey. Not trying to impress anybody. He knew God had everything under control. Didn't have to clamor for his rights. Just simply trusted in God. Got a lot to teach all of us. Gentleness comes in your sermon notes from the fact that we make a conscious decision not to exert our rights, but to have the heart of a servant. You can tell a lot about a person when they have power and authority probably more than any other time because then they have options, privileges, and position. And those without character abuse it. Instead of using their power for the betterment of people, they use it for the betterment of themselves. Tell a lot about people when they have power and authority more than any other time because they've got options, privileges, and position. And those without character who can't display the fruit of the Spirit will abuse it. Instead of using their power for people, they use it for themselves. All you have to do is go to D.C. to see what I mean. When we begin to think of others, we have a better understanding of who we need to be, which is why Peter said... Learn to put aside your own desires so that you become patient and godly, gladly letting God have his way in your life. That's going to make it possible for you to take the next steps, which is for you to enjoy other people and to like them and finally grow in love with them. Look at the process, he says in that context. You need to learn to put away you. Which is Philippians when he says, look, if you want to imitate Christ, this is how you do that. He said, everything aside, took on the form of a servant, Humble himself, obedient to the cross, and let God exalt him instead of other people. Gentle people have understanding. They're not demanding. James 4, where do fights and quarrels come from among you? It come because you want your way, which really isn't that necessary after all. For where you have selfish ambition and envy, you'll find disorder and evil practice. Our words must be controlled by the Spirit of God. Gentle answer turns away wrath. You know this. But your, your, our words have the power to build up or tear down. Scripture says your tongue has the power to give life or to bring death. Now James expounds on it in chapter 3 and kind of unpacks it in a really visible, visual way. But your tongue, my tongue, has the power to give life or to bring death. And when I fully understand the need to be under the control of God's Spirit, I really, walking by His Spirit, Guard my words. Ephesians 4, be gentle and humble. Be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's fault. Making allowances because of your love. You and I both have been disappointed by people. Somewhere along the way, they've not lived up to our expectations. Somewhere along the way, we have not lived up to others' expectations. And we find ourselves really disappointed and wondering how to respond to all of that. And I constantly need to remind myself to go back to the Word of God and find examples. And one of my favorite is with Elijah. He had his best day on Mount Carmel when he called down fire from heaven and it came. That is one of the best sermon illustrations you can ever imagine happening. I mean, we've had sermon illustrations all over the stage for years. But I'm telling you, you call down fire from heaven and it comes, that's a good day in ministry. In 24 hours, he goes from the height of his ministry to the depth of life. Running from an evil queen who said, I'm going to kill you. Taken off as fast as he can, finally wears out, falls down and said, God, just take my life. What I love about that section, and we usually look at those two, is how God responds to that. 
God sends an angel to minister to him and then says, I want you to go to the cave over there and I'll come and talk to you. Do y'all remember what it's like when your parents said, go to your room and I'll be up in a minute? Didn't that seem like an eternity? When they said, come up in a minute, you said, why don't you just do it now? Because the waiting is awful. God says, I want you to go to that mountain and I want you to wait for me. And obviously what you see in that context there in Kings is God does and he shows up. What's intriguing is how he responds to him and what the word says about it. All of a sudden, a lot of phenomenal things begins to happen as God calls Elijah out of the cave and it says a fierce windstorm came, but after it came and subsided, the Bible said, and God was not in the wind. And then an earthquake came, but God was not in the earthquake. Then a fire came, but he wasn't in the fire. And then it says a gentle voice came and God was in the gentle voice. Elijah expecting God to really give it to him, but God gently comes and puts him back on the right track. You and I have all blown it. We have all messed up. We have not lived out this fruit every single day of our lives. We're not perfect. If you're perfect in all these areas that we talked about this summer, I might as well could preach it. And if you really are perfect, you're probably in the wrong church. Because <sighs> a lot of us aren't. We all make mistakes. What I love about God is he treats us with such grace and love and tenderness, just like the prodigal father, as he describes himself in that analogy and says, I'm there to ready to welcome you home. And when I fully understand all of that, there's something inside of me that just wants to respond in amazing ways to the grace and the love of God and to be able to not only visually say it, talk about it, express it, but to live it out every day of my life as I touch the world of the people around me. I don't know if you saw this picture. It went viral shortly after it came out. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw this little picture. The little boy on the left is autistic, and my grandson is, so I get a little bit, when I see those articles, I want to read them probably a little bit more, and I get that. Scared to death in the first day of school. And obviously, everybody probably saw him crying. But it was this little boy on the right who did something about that, who just went over and grabbed him by the hand. And those moms who I don't think knew each other, I saw their story on TV, and it's fascinating how all of a sudden God brought them together by that one little moment in time where somebody who maybe didn't even know the other one just reached out, showed grace and tenderness and love. That ought to be us all the way through our journey with Jesus as we share our love and grace to the people around us. Paul's giving Titus some advice as a young pastor. You've got to remind people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, no slander, be peaceable and considerate, always be gentle toward everyone. You see, at one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, which he defines right before you get the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. We lived in malice and envy, hated and hated everybody. But when the kindness of God, the Lord our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of anything we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Spirit, whom He poured out to us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, in light of that, for this reason, having been justified by grace, we become heirs to hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So He's telling me as a pastor to do those things. Those of you who have trusted in God need to be very careful to devote themselves to doing what is right, to doing what is good. Even as Paul said 
Galatians chapter 6, if you see someone caught in sin who's writing to church people, you need to restore them, but you need to do it gently and be very careful that you're not next. When you start to say, well, that'll never happen to me, be very careful. We're amazingly blessed by God. You know that. You sang it this morning. And you and I have the opportunity to understand that and then to live it out every day of our life to the world around us. May God help us to do that so that those who see us will say, I want that. And I want what you have found in Jesus. And you get to tell them. So that someday their name moves from that board to that board. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to explore your word. I love the fact that you, as we've already said a thousand times probably from this pulpit, that you didn't leave us floundering, but you gave us guidance and direction in your word to show us what it means to be followers of God and living, loving servants of Jesus. So as we do that, I trust that you will help us to understand the context of this, what you offer us, what you can do for us and then through us as we minister to those around us. Bless us in that process and that journey, we pray. Continue to walk with us in our journey here. In the name of Jesus, amen. Next Sunday morning, we wrap it up. Fruit stand gets closed.